Father, thank you that you've given us the opportunity to learn more about you and ourselves and your world as we read the Bible together now and think about what it says. And please help us to comprehend and respond as we consider your word together. And also please help Roland to speak to us clearly and faithfully. Amen. So today is the second in a three-stage inoculation process. What the is trying to do is trying to inoculate you against filiguria, which otherwise known as money love. In the New Testament, this idea of filiguria, one word, one concept, money love. And the picture of the New Testament is that if filiguria has gripped your heart, that is both deadly and dangerous to you. And so the EU, in its wisdom, has taken three weeks out of the policy <laughs> program to try to inoculate you against filiguria. Inoculate you against money love. What did we see last week? If you were here last week, we were looking in Luke chapter 16, and we saw that Jesus said very clearly, you cannot serve both God and money. He said you have to choose. You have to choose your master. Are you going to choose to love and serve God? Or are you going to choose to love and serve money? Because Jesus is adamant that you cannot love and serve God. You have to choose your master. If you choose to love and serve the one true living God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, then what that will mean is that will transform your relationship to money. In particular, what we saw last week from Luke chapter 16, a couple of stories, parables that Jesus told there, was that in order to serve and love God, that means understanding yourself to be a steward, someone to whom God entrusts what is fundamentally his stuff. So to understand ourselves as stewards, and we seek to be trustworthy stewards, who use what God entrusts to us, not for our own purposes, but we use it for his purposes, because it's his stuff. That's what it means to love and serve God, with respect to money, to be a trustworthy steward, use it for his purposes. So that was last week in Luke chapter 16. If you had the word over there last week, you might have faith for that. You can listen on the podcast and read through Luke 16. It'd be really good. This week, what are we doing? Well, we're going to stay in Luke's stop and we're going to go to Luke chapter 12. But the particular question for us is, okay, if I want to love and serve the one who lives in God and not money, and I want to be a trustworthy steward with respect to money, what does that actually look like? How do I actually do that? So to get some advice from Jesus on this question, we're going to go to Luke chapter 12, so it would be helpful if you could open it up and have a look at it. And we're going to work our way through the chapter starting at verse 13. Jesus says several things. The first thing that Jesus says here in Luke 12, starting at verse 13, is there's a warning. He says, beware of greed, in all of its guises, all of its masks that it wears. Greed doesn't always come to you just as pure, clear greed. It comes masked as something else. Have a look here in Luke chapter 12, start at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, back in those days, if you were the oldest son, hand up if you are the oldest son in your family. Well done. 
you inherit everything. That's the way it goes. Your siblings, they lose. You get the loss. That's what older sons got. Here's a guy who's not an older son, he's a younger son, and he's saying, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's a cry for fairness, isn't it? A cry for fairness, or maybe telling you to be generous towards me. It seems a very reasonable thing to ask. Notice though Jesus' response, verse 14. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, that is the crowd, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. So the interesting thing about what Jesus said here is, here is this guy who's calling out for fairness, but actually Jesus says, be where that could be greed. That's not necessarily just a cry for fairness. See, Jesus is interested in what's going on in the person's heart. He's saying, you've got to watch out if someone's just crying out for fairness, because quite possibly what is driving them is money love, is greed, the desire to have stuff. So that's Jesus' starting point. Beware of greed in one of its guides, even a cry for fairness, for generosity. But notice where he goes next. There, in the second half of verse 15, he points out why greed is mistaken, why it's a bad strategy. He says, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. We actually saw this last week. Do you remember some of the parables that Jesus told? He told a story about a rich man who lived every day in luxury, but at whose gate lay Lazarus, a poor beggar. Do you remember how that story ended? That guy being rich towards himself, he stored up everything for himself, but at the end of his days, he ended up in Hades, in torment. Life, eternal life, did not consist in having a whole lot of possessions. That didn't gain him life, did it? He wasn't a trustworthy steward. He didn't use what God had entrusted to him for God's purposes. Instead, he kept it up for himself. He too was greedy. And you can see here Jesus makes the point. The problem with greed is that a person's life, eternal life, does not consist in the abundance of your possession, having lots of stuff. Greed is fundamentally this place. It's a bad strategy, actually. You truly gain life. Then notice what he goes on in verse 16. He unveils another one of greed's masks. He tells this story, verse 16. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. Okay, so the key person in the story is a rich guy. He has already a lot of stuff. And then one year his ground produces not just the regular crop, he produces a good crop. There's an abundance. What is this guy going to do? Verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I'll say much to myself, you have plenty of things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be 
this guy, the rich guy, he gets a windfall, a blessing from God. Suddenly, a whole a, a bumper crop. What's he going to do? He works out, well, I'll just tear down my, my present barns, which are not big enough, build some bigger ones, and then store it all away. That's sensible. That's just why. Because then he says, I've got many laid up for the future. What about if the next 10 years we're going to be drought? What about if there's going to be flood? What about if there's going to be sort of uh, you know, pestilence? He stored it all up. It's wise, isn't it? Just to store up. God's given you the abundance, store it up, then your future is secure. It's just wisdom, isn't it? But Jesus unmasks what seems to us and seems to pretty much anyone you ask in our society as just wise. Jesus unmasks it actually as greed. Have a look at what he says. Verse 20, but God says to him, this rich guy in you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus said, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. If you're going to store up things for yourself, Jesus is still talking about greed. This is storing up things for yourself. It will not end well. God will say to you, you fool. A person's life will not consist in the abundance of possessions. Do you see here what Jesus unmasks is he unmasks greed and he's masquerading as wisdom. It just seems sensible to store it up if you've got access to it. Store it up for your future. You don't know what the future will bring. But Jesus is saying, no, that is actually foolishness. <coughs> it's dream. Now that is quite a radical message. That is pretty much sort of underlined probably the whole superannuation right? Storing up for your future. It's very, very radical message. Jesus will fail in any sort of worldly message, wise financial advice. Like this doesn't we would say, this is not wise. But notice what Jesus does next. He's been saying this to the crowd, right? But then he turns in verse 22 and he addresses now his disciples. Those who say, actually, I, I am trying to worship the one who lives in God. I do believe, Jesus, that you are his son, and I'm following you. He turns to his disciples. And he stays on message. He stays with the same sort of message. But what he preaches to his disciples is the same message but a bit different than to the crowd. To the crowd, it was a warning. Beware of greed in all its guises. When he turns to his disciples, he preaches freedom. Freedom from anxiety. You don't need to worry about the future like everyone else is. Let's have a look at that, starting here in verse 14. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than yours? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? 
since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Jesus makes the point here, he's saying to worry about your future basic needs, what you will eat or what you will wear, right? Their future just basic needs. Worrying about those things, he says, is unnecessary and ineffective. Unnecessary, he says, because look at the ravens, look at the birds. Do they have storehouses? Do they have superannuation accounts? Do they have bank accounts where they can store up stuff in case tomorrow's a bad day? No. But God feeds them each and every day. So he says, guess what? You are more valuable to God than birds. God loves birds. You are more valuable to him than the birds. He provides for them each day. He's going to go on in the next little section and talk about the lilies of the field, the flowers of the field. Look at them dressed in all their finery. Even Solomon, King Solomon from ancient Israel, in all of his splendor, wasn't dressed as beautifully as these. And is that how God clothes the flowers of the field that are here today and tomorrow run over by your lawnmower? How much more will he clothe you? See, worry about your future basic needs is, according to Jesus, unnecessary. You don't need to worry about that if you're one of his people. But also, he says, it's ineffective. Notice that he says, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this, very little thing. Why do you worry about the rest? He's saying, you don't know how many days God is going to give you, right? That's in God's hands. But say you wanted to try to extend how long you could live on this earth for one hour. Just say you could add one hour to your life. And you worry and worry and show you, no matter how much you worry about that, you can't do it. You can't extend your life just by an hour, even by an hour. He's saying, if you can't even just do that, why are you worrying about all the little, the all individual days, the future basic needs you will need in order to get to that kind of place? It's all under God's hands. He's the one who has control over it. He will get you to whatever is your final day. Worry about your future basic needs is unnecessary and it's actually ineffective. You are not in control. Where did you go next? Look at verse 27. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor is dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Ah, see that last phrase? O you of little faith? That's Jesus putting his finger onto the real issue. Why do we find Jesus' teaching in this passage so hard? Don't worry about your future basis there. It's because we have little faith. We find it hard to trust God in this area. Jesus is encouraging us as his people to trust him. To be people of faith. And how does that play out in verse 29? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. 
He's saying if all the people who don't know that they have a loving Heavenly Father, people who don't know who are worried about the future, they're worried about what they will eat, what they will drink, what will they wear. Because they don't know that they have a loving Heavenly Father who knows what your needs are. And the promise here in verse 31 is, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. So your father isn't sort of just knowledgeable about your needs but doesn't care. No, he's a loving father who knows your needs and as you seek to commit yourself to being a good steward and living for him, the promise here is that he will give you what you need to eat, what you need to drink, what you need to wear. So you don't need to worry about your future basic needs. He's got it covered as you seek first his kingdom and be a trustworthy steward of what he's entrusted you to start. That seems to be the picture. So the antidote to worry about your future basic needs in this passage is faith. Faith in your heavenly Father who knows our needs and will provide as you seek first his kingdom. That seems to be the picture that Jesus paints here. Now, if you've been listening to this, if you've been following along what Jesus is saying, you don't need to store up stuff for your own future. You don't need to worry about your future basic needs. You might feel how radical that message from Jesus is. And you might be feeling a little bit uncertain. After all, what's the messages you've been hearing from the world, hearing from your family, maybe even hearing from, from other Christians, is you need to be sensible when it comes to money. You need to get some security. You need to start saving up for the future. But that's the message we hear all the time. You hear Jesus' message and you think, whoa, that, that feels risky, Jesus. Just to leave it all up to you, to leave it all up to our Heavenly Father, just trust him, he'll provide that field for long risky. Jesus knows it's risky. Because look at what he says next. Verse 32. Do not be afraid. Well, I think if you've been listening to Jesus, you would be feeling afraid. You've got to think he is risky. And he says, don't be afraid. Why not be afraid? He says, don't be afraid, little fly. For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Remember last week I talked about how uh, part of what the way we were to understand ourselves as stewards was to be have real foresight. We actually have eternity in view. The wise investment, if you like to use that term, of present sort of financial worldly wealth is done so with eternity in mind. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing here, isn't he? He's saying provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven. He's saying have eternity in mind. Because your father, who knows your present needs, he wants to give you the kingdom one day. He's going to give you the kingdom. Do you think he can sustain you each day until he calls you there? Of course he can. He wants to give you the kingdom, don't you? Right? And where Jesus goes to that is, you can sell your possessions, sell your possessions, and give to the Lord. That is, steward what God has entrusted to you now according to God's purpose to help the needy around you. You don't have to store it up for yourself like a rich man in the parable. 
who had to store it up for himself so he didn't have to worry about his person. You never need to do that. Trust your father. He knows your needs. Seek his kingdom. He'll give those things to you as well. He wants to give you. He'll get you. That seems to be the truth of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus comes to his conclusion, verse 34. And I must admit, I've, I've been thinking and talking about Luke chapter 4 for many years. And I've, I've never really understood verse 34. I've never told you that, that I've got to explain it, but I don't think. It's just going to But finally, in the last week, I've finally worked out what I think Jesus is saying. Um, it's just being respectful to Jesus. I always thought Jesus got it the wrong way round in this verse. Verse 34 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That never made any sense. What made sense to me was, if Jesus had said, Where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. So is your heart with God, or is your heart with money? Right? That's where you put your treasure. That made sense to me. That's not what Jesus said. He said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I just said the wrong way around. You're all this week, I think, I don't try to work on it. Someone last week asked me, how can I tell if I'm caught up with philodoria, with money love? How can I tell if I really am loving God or whether I'm loving money? This is Jesus' answer, verse 34. This is Jesus' powerful diagnostic tool to work out if you are captured by philodoria or not. This verse. What does it say? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know where your heart is? Look to see where your treasure is. <coughs> is it stored up in your barn? Or is it treasure in heaven? As we just talked about. Where is your treasure? Just ask yourself that question. That will tell you where your heart is. Money love? Or the love? It could well be, couldn't it, that your bank space is a powerful diagnostic tool. Where is your pressure? That's where your heart is. Once I finally, after all these years, understood what Jesus is saying, suddenly I go, No, 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 Jesus, you don't understand this. Because look, I can love you, and it's okay to have all this money here. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And is your treasure there? Is it there? Like that part? Or is your treasure being used, being have you divested yourself of that treasure in order to pursue God's purposes in the world, such that you put your treasure in heaven? Where your treasure is, there your heart. What do we do with that? How? Then if you, if you talk to me today, right, and you just said, okay, I will not store up for myself for my future basis. I, I will listen to you, Jesus. I'll use it instead for your purposes. Seek first your kingdom, and you know my needs, and you provide. 
How might God actually do that? How might God actually provide for you? Does the Bible give us any hint? In fact, it does. So I want to then have a look at Luke 12, step into the rest of the Bible to say, so how might God actually provide for you going forward if you actually live this? So here's on one on one slide, here is, I think, God's economic model. God's economic model I characterise as faith-filled, we've seen that already, faith-filled, financial, interdependence, not independence. What does our world say? You need to be financially independent, not dependent on the government, not dependent on the parents, not dependent on anyone else. You need, that's the only way to be truly secure. It's just, it's just not biblical at all. The biblical model is faith-filled financial interdependence amongst God's people. That is the model. How does this model work out? Well, the first thing to start with is 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10. We work in order to live. God gives us work to do so that we are then paid and that work helps you to buy food to eat, clothes to wear, somewhere to live. Paul says in our 2 Thessalonians, he says, if you won't work, then you won't eat. Pretty straightforward. Now, that already, I mean, it's very simple, right? So, so the model in the Bible is, you want to keep eating? You just keep working. Pretty straightforward. Now, our world, our society says, no, 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 no. We've got a much better plan. I want to retire at 55. Well, 57. Like, I want, like that's the goal is to stop work. That's all, that's the great goal. Well, I'm just saying, stop eating. You work in order to live. So I am anticipating that I will need to keep working until I can work no longer. That's just what I'm assuming that I will do. I'll keep working in order to keep working. You work for this. Now, what happens when I get so old that I can't actually work? Or what happens if even I can only work a little bit, but that's not really enough. What's what's the answer in the New Testament? Well, the answer in the New Testament is pretty clear. If I am still in need, then my biological family is to help me. One Timothy chapter five verse four eight sixteen says that if you won't provide for your immediate family, then you are worse than an unbeliever. Because even those who don't know Jesus have enough love in their heart to do that to provide for their immediate. So we provide for our media So any excess I have from the work that I do is meant to be, I am meant to share that with any of my immediate and extended family within the church. That's the model. Right. What happens if my whole family is in need? If my whole family can't meet those the requirements? Then, clearly the New Testament, still in 1 Timothy 5, that is needed. The local church then is to help those whose families can't or won't help. So in 1 Timothy 5, uh, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy on what to do with people who are in the Christian community, widows, who are, whose families can't or won't support them. And Paul is very clear, if their families can't or won't support them, then you must put them on some sort of list so they make sure that they are cared for by the local church. So there's a model there, right? You care for people in your local Christian community who are in need. What about if the whole community was in need? Say some natural disaster has happened, there's massive things. Well, that's clear in the New Testament too, actually. Because if needed, the global church is to help. 
You can see this in uh, Romans 15 or 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul, he's a great church plant, right? He's going around planting churches, proclaiming Jesus, but whilst he's doing it, he is also collecting a whole bunch of money, financial resources, to send back to the church in Jerusalem, which was undergoing uh, real hardship. So there's a moral there that the global church is meant to help out others amongst all people that are in need. In fact, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is very clear where he says the goal is equality amongst God's global people. He says so that out of your present abundance, you can meet this other part of the church's need, so that in the future, if you're in need, then out of their abundance, they can meet them. The goal is actually equality. Now, even as I say those words, even as I say it like this, you just think about the global church and you think about whether we are anywhere near that sort of thing. And just as Christians, global equality of anywhere, 200 million of the world's absolute force, because people who are doing what the World Bank calls abject poverty, 200 million of them claim the name of Jesus. They claim the name of Jesus. But this is what I am told. There is enough, he has entrusted enough to Christians to not just care for one another, he's entrusted enough to Christians across the globe to care for everyone. Now, I'm just going with some stats that some people worked out a couple of years ago. They said if you look at all the money that Christians give globally, and up all their Christians income and how much Christians give away globally is about 2%. Christians give away about 2%. If Christians gave away up just 10%, that would you know, there'd be five times as much money to go around. And that sum of money is more than the United Nations says is necessary to solve world poverty. Christians could solve world poverty and still have enough money left over to do as much evangelistic and church planning work as we could possibly want to. God has put enough, entrusted enough into the system. But the problem is, we are storing it up in our hearts. Preaches freedom to his followers. And that's what that's all. Okay, so where does this man grow? Where did he grow? He's my son. Because as Christians we have a father who knows our physical needs. We have freedom as his children to live in faith and use our present excess, not for future basic needs. Or just to live in current luxury, but to use our present excellence to meet present physical and spiritual needs amongst God's local and global people. But not just there, because the scriptures are clear, we are to do good, as Jesus said, to do good to all, especially to the household of us. But we are to do good to all. So also to use it more broadly amongst all for their physical and spiritual good. Now, 
that's a big stuff. So I guess what we need to do from this particular point last week, stewardship, this week, kind of think about how we steward those things for God instead of being greedy for ourselves. The big question now is, right, well, get really practical. How do you actually steward that? So, we're going to do that in two stages. That is, we're going to hear right now from a few viewers uh, about how they think about some of this sort of stuff to get practical. And then next week, the third stage of your inoculation process, we're going to talk about some really concrete things. We're going to talk about contentment, generosity, saving, investment. We're going to talk about some of those sort of concrete things. Father, it can be quite scary to think about how different your priorities are for wealth compared to what the world tells us is wise and sensible. And please give us the faith that we need to follow you wholeheartedly in this area of our life. Please convict us of greed as it exists in our own lives. Lift our eyes from worries about our future basic needs and comfort us with the knowledge that we have a loving Heavenly Father who we can fully rely on to provide us with what we need. And thank you that we don't need to be You've given us everything in Jesus, and so help us to seek your kingdom first and to steward your wealth with eternity in mind. Help us to continue putting serious time and thought into what this looks like specifically in our lives. Amen. Amen. See you next week, guys.